if you have your Bibles, go with me to, first of all, Colossians chapter 2, and then in a few moments we will be in Ephesians chapter 4. So Colossians chapter 2, and then Ephesians chapter 4. Let's read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and then we'll move to Ephesians. Paul writes this to the church in Colossae. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set aside, nailing it, or this, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. And Father, I pray as we study your word this morning that our hearts would be captivated by your glory, uh, that we would believe more thoroughly in its content and in our actual believing, that we would do this more clearly, more thoroughly, more intently. Um, this thing we celebrate once a year called the resurrection. Uh, that we would believe that we have been made alive. And that we've been made alive for a particular purpose. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We make this first statement. Because Jesus triumphed over sin and death and the evil of this world, we have ultimately been made victorious over these things as well. Right? So you've got to keep that in the back of your mind for this moment. Because Jesus triumphed over sin and death and evil of this world, we have ultimately been made victorious over these as well. Colossians here tells us that by his death, our sins have been forgiven, our debt has been erased, and our sins have been decisively and finally nailed to the cross. That in his death, our Bondage to sin, slavery, and death has been loosed. And yet, we as individuals and as a corporate body have yet to overcome, in another reality, the evil, or in another sense, the evil 
that Christ has already overcome. There is a sense in which we have overcome this evil, and there's a sense in which we still walk in self-induced slavery to the evil of this world. In His resurrection, we have received everything we need for the calling to be holy temples where God will dwell. Everything. And yet, many days, it wouldn't be fit for a mere human to dwell let alone the glorious God of the universe. You see, there's a sense in which we have been, we have overcome these things, and we have been made victorious over these things in Jesus. But yet there's another sense in which we have not. In His resurrection, having received all of these things, we see this in Jesus triumphing over sin and death. And we see this in Colossians, how we've been made alive in Christ's resurrection. Without His resurrection, we have no being made alive. But in being made alive, we are given everything we need to be the dwelling places for God. Let me remind you of a passage we've been talking about for the past few weeks, verse 8 of Ephesians 4, it says, Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. And He says after that, this won't be on the screen, but for you with your Bibles open, it says in verse 9, In saying He ascended, what does it mean? But that He had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Without the resurrection, there is no ascension. And in his ascension and in his resurrection, we have this giving, this being made alive, and this giving of gifts given in order for us to become the dwelling places for God. I would just pause for a moment and ask us to ponder the question of how many days or moments or hours go by where we are not consciously thinking, am I seeking to be a dwelling place for God? And if you study the Old Testament, like the dwelling place for God is a big deal. From the tabernacle to the temple to the holiness of God's people, it's a big deal. This is not just a New Testament or a, just some flippant thing that we talk about, that some neat little example that Paul gives us. No, this is, this is very central and fundamental to the way God works. The idea of Him dwelling, we see this even in the garden where He walked with Adam and Eve. The idea that he would be on the mountain and the mountain would shake at Mount Sinai and, and Moses on the mountain couldn't even look, but his God could just pass by. What's this it's talking about the weightiness of the presence of God and that he is both transcendent and imminent. But what it talks about is this this location for God's dwelling place is a big deal. But Christ has given us gifts in order to lead us 
to do the work of the ministry, which is building the dwelling place of God. And God has empowered this and enabled this by the death and resurrection of our Savior. So here's the question for today. What does this dwelling place look like? What does this dwelling place that Jesus died and resurrected for, what does this dwelling place look like? Because I would argue that, that the dwelling place of God, again, is one of the most fundamental pictures and motivators and whatever you want to call it. Like it is the thing, one of the primary things which we are aiming toward, that we are working after, that God has painted for us to see. So the question is, what does this dwelling place look like? What does it look like? If I had to ask you to write an essay right now, how thorough of an essay would you write on what this dwelling place looks like? For what did Jesus die for? You say, well, He died for me. I would say yes, but that's a small picture. He died to set His people free to build and be a dwelling place for God. He didn't just die for you. He didn't just die for me, as awesome as that is. He died for something bigger than you and something bigger than me. He died so that he could set a people free and then indwell those people and so fill the earth with his glory. That's why Jesus died. So where is the work then? If that's he has brought us and set us free to do the work of the ministry, which is building that place, what are we aiming for? I mean, is it just some place that has streets of gold and that lead to some wizard, like the Wizard of Oz? Like, what are we, what are we, I mean, for many of us, we just, we just think about heaven, and I'm just trying to be a good person, like Jesus, until I get to heaven. There's more than that. This place that we're building is something that we enjoy now. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not waiting to heaven to enjoy God. And if you are, you don't know the God of the Bible nor His plan for you. This place that we're building is a place of complete joy and satisfaction in Him where the, the, the very fact that these people can enjoy Him, the very fact that they can and that they're satisfied in Him proclaims the great glory of God to this world. A place where God's overcoming our sin displays His great power and might. And a place where the work of the cross and resurrection are seen to completion. You see, for most of us, or many of us at the very least, we see the work of the cross and resurrection as complete in the moment you get saved. And then what happens is then we kind of begin to live this little very little effort to try and live this cute little religious life. That's where we go. I cross and resurrection, and I need that to be saved, and then now I kind of do this religious activity. Every once in a while, I'm giving a head nod once a year to the crucifixion and 
the resurrection of our Savior. The reality is, though, the death and resurrection of Jesus have just as much bearing on your life today as it did the day that you were first saved. Listen, if in the resurrection you were made alive, I mean really made alive, then you will walk the walk toward fullness in Christ. Being made alive means you will walk this walk towards the fullness of Christ. It doesn't mean you will look plateaued or declining for decades. But you will walk the walk toward fullness in Christ. So let's read Ephesians and see what we are walking toward. Okay, What we are walking toward. Verse 11. I'm going to back up. We're just going to work on verse 13 this morning. Verse 11, though. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Again, all this is out of the spoils of his victory. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith, And of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what the building looks like. That's what the building looks like. And we're going to unpack that. But that's what the building looks like. Before we get into, I'm going to talk about three descriptors of this glorious building. But before we get to that, The first thing I want us to notice is that we all must do the work of ministry until it's done. We must all do the work of ministry until it's done. You're going to see this point kind of wrap up at the very end today. But you must see that we all must do the work of the ministry until it's done. Look at verse 13. He says, until we all attain. Until we all attain. So we must do the work of the ministry until we all attain. And he goes on to describe, attain what? More on that in a second. For now, we are going to do the work of the ministry. Building this building until we arrive at a particular point. It's not just, we just continue doing the work of the ministry and then all of a sudden Jesus comes back and we're done. No, we will do the work of the ministry until we arrive at a particular point that God has decided for us. And the focus here in verse 13 is on the end point. Like There's a place that we're headed to. We're going to attain something. We're going to reach that. It's going to be ours. It's going to be a reality. I don't know if you realize this, but the end point of our time here on earth is not some arbitrary, random returning of Jesus Christ to get His people. The end point of our time on this earth will be when the work of the building of the body of Christ is done. I want you to think about that. We haven't even defined what done is yet. But if the work, if if Jesus will return when the work of the ministry is done, what does that do then for your working? What does that do for where you give your efforts and energy to? 
What does it do? I mean, I don't know about you, as I'm working through this text this week, I'm going, where am I wasting my time? What am I spending my time doing? The end point of our time on earth will be when the work of the building of the body of Christ is done. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go home. The work of the ministry will be done when both the gathering of the remaining elect is finished, both here and far, as well as the maturing of all of God's elect. This is when Christ will return. When the work of the ministry is done. When the building that will house the presence of God is done. When it has been attained. Again, just look at the Old Testament. See how particular God was about His dwelling places. He has given us, even today, the blueprints of this dwelling place. The second thing I want you to see in this idea of the work of the ministry until it's done is that we all together will do the work of the ministry until it's done. Now this is a together effort. Listen, this statement is for whether you've been a member here a long time or whether you're just a visitor. But significant Christian growth or progress does not occur in isolation. It does not occur in isolation. It's doing the work together until we all attain. The idea here is a togetherness of attaining this goal that we're after. But significant Christian growth or progress does not occur in isolation. The building of this building doesn't happen with you on your own. And I would even argue it doesn't happen between just you and your wife or your spouse, your husband. For one, I'd say because you're practically too much alike. The Bible calls you one flesh. Okay? Believe it or not, uh, most of the time you're going to have each other's side. Like you're going to Unless, unless they offended you, for the most part, you're going to have their back. And so your ability to prod them on in sanctification is probably not going to be that great. There's an isolationism that can even happen among just you and your family. And you and your spouse. But we all together grow. I would even argue that simply being involved on Sundays and house gatherings alone, it's going to be hard to count as doing the work of the ministry together. Here's why. Show me how between these two settings that you're able to faithfully build up the body of Christ to maturity. It's a hard place to do that here. Right now. Right now, well let me keep going. I'll get to this in a second. House gathering, there is more opportunity for that, but not a ton. Here's what's happening. Like, 
And these two environments, they're primarily meant for equipping and training you in doing the work of the ministry. The other 160 hours the rest of the week is for doing the work of the ministry. Again, I don't want to narrowly, narrowly define the work of the ministry. We talked about this over the past couple weeks. It's broader than most of us think. But at the very core, building and doing the work of the ministry is helping other believers know, as we're going to talk about today, the Son of God. That means you knowing the Word and helping others know the Word. Now right here, what's happening right here is I'm helping you know the Word. You're not helping each other know the Word. Does that make sense? I'm helping you. And then what you're supposed to do is take this time this equipping time, and then go use that to help each other the rest of the week. You know, DNA is one of those things where environment where we created primarily for the purpose of doing the work of the ministry to each other. Building each other up in Christ, in the Word. It's not the only, and again, just because you're part of DNA doesn't mean you're actually even doing this anyways. It's just that's our prodding point to help that happen. But you can be a part of a DNA group and not be doing the work of the ministry. You might just be another equipping moment for you. Which is partially fine as long as you're taking that equipping time and then doing the work of the ministry. So Paul's language here envisages this, like God's people collectively en route to this final destination. Like Paul's language is, they're doing this together. They're on a plan. They're, they're, they're working towards something. And I want to remind you that, that Paul's thoughts here are not a suggestion. I just want to make this clear. This is a this is a what you should be doing. That Jesus died and the spoils of His victory have been given to the church to do this. And I want to encourage you with this. If you are not running this journey well, I want to, I just want to speak to you very candidly. You're impacting the rest of the body. I don't think we realize that in our very individualistic society. But if the whole body together is going to attain some goal, then your personal journey impacts the rest of the body. It's not just about you. On the flip side of this, I would say if you are running this journey well, then you need to grab the hand of someone who isn't. And gently and graciously bring them along. Because if we're going to reach the final goal, if we're going to attain what we're about to define, then we must work till the end and we must work all together, every last one of us. Just, just because we've been Christians for a long time, just because we're members of this awesome church, doesn't mean 
that we are faithfully working and doing the work of the ministry. If we're going to reach this final goal, we must all work till the end. So here, let me give you this. What are we working toward? What does is, what is verse 13 describe for us that we are working toward? Three descriptors of this glorious building that Almighty God will dwell in, and He is gifting us to build. Three descriptors. The first one is this. We work toward unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We work toward the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Let me point out to you. He says in verse 13, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. What has he just said? We're going to do the work of the ministry, building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Just a plain reading. What does that say? We're going to be working until this happens. We're going to be working until this is attained. This is not something, listen, that just happens by doing religious activity. It's not something by just simply showing up to something that's church-related. Guys, the end goal is that we would all have unity. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me tell you plainly what he's saying. That we would all have unity concerning the objective content of the Scriptures concerning Jesus, the Son of God. So this is very similar. When he talks about the one faith just a few verses earlier, talking about that being the content of the truth, like the content of belief, not the actual act of believing. So Paul is not talking about Christian activity of faith, but instead the objective content of our beliefs. This is very practical. It's very practical. It's the idea of knowledge then. He says of faith and of the knowledge. The idea of knowledge here helps us understand that it is the knowledge of the Son of God that we are after. It's not just this unity of, of believing that we all, we all believe together that Jesus died on the cross and then like everything else is up for grabs. But there's an actual unity of the content of the knowledge of the Son of God that we are to be working toward obtaining unity therein. I want to remind you that this knowledge of the Son of God, that in knowledge of the Son of God, in the Son Himself, there is life. I think we forget this. There isn't life in your career. There isn't life in your medicinal research. There isn't life in your sports. There isn't life in your education. There is life in the Son of God. Know Him. We all want whole lives. We just want to look everywhere else but Jesus. We all want to be healthy. But we want to look for health in every aspect of our life except our spirits. 
We all want to be good parents. But we look for discipline in things other than knowing the Son of God. All of the scriptures, listen, reveal what we need to know concerning the Son of God. I don't know about you, that's a big task. There's a lot there to know. There's a lot there for us to be unified on. And I don't see anywhere in here where we get to relieve that stress. He says, we're doing the work of the ministry until we attain. Listen, let me, this knowledge of the Son of God, listen to this, back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2-3, through three, it says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, listen to this, verse 3, in whom are hidden all all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Mom and dad, do you want your kids to grow up loving God? Jesus is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. You believe that? The best chances your kids have at believing that. But if they see you searching elsewhere, they're going to search elsewhere too. But mom, mom and dad, if, whether you're a parent or not, I don't care. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, listen. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of them. All of it. I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to be mean with this, okay? I'm not trying to be mean. But some of us started learning about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we stopped learning about Jesus at the cross and maybe the resurrection. But this is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. All of them. And the end goal is that we would all have unity concerning the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let me address something very briefly here. There is this tension of what we talk when we talk about Pauline writings quite a bit. We talk about this tension of kind of the already, not yet. Something that's already a reality, but in some parts, but in some ways, not a reality. So the unity of beliefs we are to maintain that we talked about in chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. He says, we are now instructed to attain. So that which we were supposed to maintain, we're now instructed to attain. Or the mystery, another one is the mystery of Christ already made known to us is now an understanding to be grasped, to have unity with. So there is an already sense where God has accomplished 
this unity of beliefs and this mystery, this making known of this mystery of Jesus to us. But nevertheless, there is still a sense in which we haven't and that we have a responsibility to work to this end. So what's this mean for us? What's this mean for us? If there is any doubt in your mind whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, any doubt, let me ask you this. Do you know the Son of God? You have a knowledge of the Son of God and more than an intellectual understanding. So I'm going to dive a little bit into not just the knowing the objective truth, but now the actual act of believing and having faith in. I'm going to ask you, do you love Him? Do you submit to Jesus? More than on Sunday mornings. Do you see and worship Him for the debt He paid for your sins? This is the most basic knowledge of the Son of God that you must know, and without it, you really can know nothing else. You should know today that His law and His love is perfect. You should know today that Jesus' death and resurrection was not just to get you to heaven. It was to restore you to a wonderful relationship with the holy creator of the cosmos. I would encourage you to repent of any evil, all the evil that's in your life, done against God, and believe that Jesus paid the price for your sin debt. For those of you that are pretty sure of your walk with Christ, what does this mean for us? It means that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has made us alive to know the objective truth of Scripture so that we might be unified. And to that end, we work. And we work hard. You want to know the th- one of the things that encourages your elders the most is when we hear and see of people growing in their insight into the knowledge of the Son of God. As they grow, fresh new learning. I'm not talking about like crazy learnings. I'm just talking about just even obvious truths of Scripture. Studying those and learning those and seeing, seeing you fall in love with those. As they lead you to fall in love with Jesus. What does this also does this mean? This also means that we have a responsibility to be in the Word regularly and to be very intentionally listening and following the equipping work of your elders. If we're going to grow and we're going to attain unity in the knowledge of the Son of God, then we have two big areas where God is helping us do this. Most fundamentally through the Word. And then the gifts He's given to the church, the elders and then the individual gifts to the body are given to help us understand Jesus and know Jesus through His Word. So I want you to see that we work toward unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And we do this until it's done. 
Second of all, we work toward being mature people. We work toward being mature people. Notice I did not say socially adjusted people. We work toward being mature people. And I would argue that maturity in Christ is not necessarily going to look like maturity of the rest of the world. Okay? But I know, like, we get these two confused all the time. Ephesians 4.13, he says, Until we attain, first one, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of Son of God. Second one, until we all attain to mature manhood. So the end goal is that we would be mature people according to its definition in the Scriptures. That we would all be. I mean, do you you hear that? That we all would grow to maturity, to be mature people. So what does this look like? What is this mature people? I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but this is ultimately someone who walks in a manner worthy of their calling. Sounds familiar? Just a little bit earlier. Walk in a manner worthy of their calling. What's our calling? To be holy and blameless. To be holy and blameless. That's a tall order. So there's a sense in which we are holy and blameless before God, But in case you haven't realized this, there's a very sense in which we're not holy and blameless before God, right? Everyone got that? Like, shake your head, yes, I get that. So that means there's work to be done in your life, in my life. To be someone, listen, when we are holy and blameless, we will be someone in some place where the fullness of God would be pleased to dwell. Guys, again, you have to realize that there's a sense in which this is a reality. That we in Christ, and God is dwelling with His people. There's also a sense in which the fullness has not happened. Again, what does this look like? For starters, someone who is above reproach. Someone who is sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, gentle, not quarrelsome. Someone who's patient, gentle, kind, not quarrelsome, seeks the unity of the body, who's about the right priorities, a hard, faithful worker, someone who uses his gifts or her gifts of the Spirit for the work of the ministry. Listen, just a side note that I had is you will never reach maturity in Christ. We will never reach maturity in Christ together by getting everything done on our to-do list and yet neglecting prayer and time in the Word. We just won't. Listen, listen, let me speak to you for just a moment. I'm speaking right to my own heart too. Can't we trust that God can multiply our time and energy and effectiveness and efficiency if we would just give Him five loaves of bread and two fish? If we just give Him that much of our time? That he couldn't multiply the other? We're not going to get to mature manhood any other way. 
You're not going to get to mature manhood by just listening to sermons on Sundays. Let's even get a little crazy. And going to house gathering on Tuesdays. Let's get a little more crazy. And going to DNA. If you're just doing those three things and that's it, we're not going to grow to mature manhood. Guys, God, God is not looking for someone to dwell in part-time. It's full-time or no time. We are corporately to be growing toward maturity. So this happens, right? This happens as each one of us grows in maturity, but also as we help each other. As we help each other. That's why we have gifts. I was explaining to someone, uh, I have the tendency in counseling situations, whether formal or informal, to be like very like straight, right? Straight shooter. You know, I've never been called that before. You know, just kind of... I mean, I, I might say a whole lot, right? I might give like, a th- you know, I might talk for a half hour, but it's all about shooting straight, right? Uh, I usually don't dance around the truth. <clears throat> and, and I know, like, and I, I've learned to try and watch body language and stuff, and, and, I, and, I, and like, I just notice sometimes, like, some, that kind of just hits people, like, whoa, oh my gosh. And so I was explaining to someone the other day, I said, you know, one of the gifts God's given me is the ability to, to see a little more black and white and kind of speak the truth in to the situation. And I said, so I don't mean for this to be like really aggressive. Instead, this is one of the ways that I get to help the body is by doing this. Now, I can learn to do that more wisely. I can use the tone that back a little bit and you know, uh, but it's a gift. It's how we, how we. It's one of the ways we would help each other, and you have gifts that complement those kinds of things. Those those gifts. You know, the unity of the body here is is akin to the the oneness idea. When back in chapter two, if you can remember him talking about this one new man, this one new man. No longer Jews, Gentiles. Guys, it's not just, listen, it's not just about, this is, what, this is what Paul's building towards. And we're right in the midst of like the climax of his building. It's not just from people from all races across the globe, although that's very important. It's about these people attaining unity, oneness, in the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the one new man. It's not just simply Jews and Gentiles, as marvelous as that is, becoming one new man. It is about all of these people becoming one new man. Why? What's this one new man? People who believe exactly the same concerning the knowledge of the Son of God. And here's the reality, guys, listen. That's going to happen. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, so, so as someone who teaches the Word often, right? Sunday after Sunday, house gathering after house gathering. If you, and if, if you're teaching your kids, like, how awesome would it be for us to walk into the room and all believe exactly the same thing about Jesus Christ? Like, how awesome would that be? How awesome would that be? That'd be better than streets of gold and 
floating on clouds with harps. Like, we all believe the same thing. And listen, if we all believe the same thing, that means we're all living the same way. Like, not doing the same things, but doing them with the same motivations and doing the the right things that glorify God and fulfill us. How awesome would that be to show up at house gathering on Tuesdays or Wednesday nights and like just walk in and and all of us are in agreement about the most weighty things in the world, the knowledge of the Son of God. And we have all can come in and celebrate that we've been living in a way that honors God all week long. How would that feel? What would that be like? That's what heaven's going to be like. And this is going to happen until we attain and we work until we attain this. We don't just half-heartedly work and then just, well, when Jesus gets here, he'll set it all straight. No, we work hard, and then when we come up short, he'll finish the job. Kind of a third sub-point under there, if you will, is that when he means mature, I don't think he means perfection. I think the perfection piece will happen. The other side of eternity. Now, let me back up for a second here, too. Make sure that you are, in the back of your mind, setting what I'm saying, and the text here is saying, up against passages like Philippians 1. Where we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who wills and works through us, right? The problem is this, some of us, we just lean so heavy on that in an unhealthy way that we then just kind of get lackadaisical about working. The reality is the Bible teaches both. Both the dependence on God and trust and encouragement that God's doing this and a His people working really hard. It's both. But back to this mature, but not, not necessarily a sense of perfection, This is in contrast to the infants he's going to talk about in verse 14. We'll get there, you know, sometime this year. Uh, Actually, we should get there next week because that's verse 14. So hopefully we'll be there next week. I'm not planning to spend the next year in verse 13, although we could. Um, But verse 14. Look at verse 14. It's not going to be on the screen if you look at your Bibles. So that... We, so here's the practical outworking of the image. Got that? The image of the building, the picture of the building, what we're working towards is what we're talking about today. Next week's going to be the practical outworking. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, so on, so on, and so forth. So what's this? It's not necessarily perfection, but it's maturity where we are stable, where we're not tossed around like a boat in a storm by the winds of false teaching. Now let's talk about this for a moment. Some of us think that this winds of false teaching is limited to avoiding a cult or not watching TBN. But listen, how about a day, pick a day this past week, where you were enjoying the truth of God, resting in His sovereignty, and motivated by His grace. Got that? Got that picture in your mind? I mean, hopefully you at least had one day like that this past week. Then all of a sudden, selfishness 
pride or some other pick your evil comes into place. What's happening? You, my friend, were being tossed around like a boat in a storm by the winds of false teaching. It's just that your own heart and mind were the false teachers. Listen, we don't have to flip a channel to find false teaching. We got plenty enough of it in our own minds and in our own hearts. Hebrews 5.14 says this, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I would so love to preach a sermon on that. I have two comments underneath of it, and that's it. The first one is this. Is this you? Is this you? Someone who has their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And listen, I'm not talking about polishing the outside of your bowl. A lot of us are awesome at that. But distinguishing what's evil and what's good inside. Solid food is for the mature, he says. The second thought underneath this is why don't you humbly ask your DNA leader or your elders if you're showing fruit of someone trained by constant practice able to distinguish between good and evil? Let me encourage you to do that. And then be humble to receive what you hear. Now if you're saying, no way, then, then the answer is right there. You're not. Okay? okay? Like the Spirit's like heavy. Anybody feeling that like right now? Like the Spirit is heavy. Let's go to the next point here. We work toward the stature of the fullness of Christ. We work toward the stature of of the fullness of Christ. Listen, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So let me read it with these prepositions broken up here. Until we all attain to the unity of to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'm sorry, let me reread that one more time. Until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen, maturity, we're going to kind of defining, some of these are building, but yet they kind of stand alone. This idea of maturity is nothing less than the full stature of Jesus Christ. Now I hope some of us are feeling a bit hopeless. We should be. But let's talk through this a little bit further. Maturity is nothing less than the full stature of Christ. The church is already 
the fullness of Christ. We talked about this in chapter 1 and in chapter 4. There is an already realized dimension to this existence that the church is the fullness of Christ. But the future element, but the future element is still present with this element of that, that uh, first of all, that we are the fullness of Christ, but yet there's a future element, and Paul is exhorting us onto mature manhood, and this is defined by the fullness of Christ. The maturity of this growth is measured by nothing less than Christ's full stature. So the logical question would be this. What's meant by stature? What do we mean by stature? The stature of Jesus Christ. Um, I, I think this does a lot to help us tie things together here in Ephesians. It ties lots of things together, but particularly here in Ephesians, in these last handful of verse, verses. What is the full stature of Christ? It means this. I'm going to define this, but it means to rise to the full height of Christ. So if you can write down something, write down that. Write down stature equals to rise to the full height of of Christ. The full height of Christ. So we have to ask the question, what do you mean by height? I mean, Jesus was a Jew, right? So he's probably a little on the shorter side and, and like, you know, so some of us have already gotten there, right? I'm still hoping to grow for a few more inches. What, what, what are we talking about height here? It will help us to remember what Paul has said thus far. Christ has conquered all the evil forces of the universe by filling every corner of the universe. Look at chapter 1. This won't be on the screen. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above, see height, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things under, under the height Of Jesus under his feet and gave him as head what? In height over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then what's he going to say? So he's talking about Jesus being over all these things. His height is greater than all of these things. The the rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named. What's he mean by that? He means by that in chapter two. That the evil of the course of this world, the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. This is what Jesus is in height over. And that in him we are over these things too. But we still live here in the flesh, where we are still under lots of these things. 
where our height has not yet risen above these things. In one sense it is. In another sense it hasn't. There's a sense in which believers have already joined Him in this victory. And there's a sense in which we we haven't. Christ has already risen to the height of victory over the evils of this world and filled the universe, but the church is still moving toward full union with Christ in this specific sense. How is the church not yet fully in union, if you will, with Christ? We haven't overcome the effects of sin completely. And in order to fill the earth with His glory, we must overcome the effects of sin. We must rise to the height above. Our reflecting His glory is still marred by sin. As the ruler of the realm of the air is still at work among the sons of disobedience, the waves and winds of false teaching still trouble the church. Basic moral instruction is still necessary. Just look at all the people voting for a certain person. Believers still need to be armed against the devil's strategies. Still must be armed. These challenges mean that believers must use their gifts, including the equipping of the elders. Use these to help the body be victorious over the sin of this world. So what does it mean for us to reach the full stature of Christ? It means this. We rise to the height of victory over sin and evil just as He did. And here's the deal. Listen, listen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Jesus' death sets us free from these powers. And Jesus' resurrection gives us all the gifts needed to have victory over them. This is going to happen. And one of the ways that this is going to happen is God is going to work powerfully in us as we work really hard to get there. My last main point is this. It's in quotes or should be in quotes because it's from a scholar named F.F. Bruce. He says this, The corporate Christ cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. The corporate Christ cannot be content to fall short of the personal Christ. What do you mean by corporate Christ? That's us. That's the body of Jesus. The personal Christ. That's Christ Himself. There must be spiritual maturity in the corporate personality of the church. Meaning us together as a body must be seeking to obtain, to attain this spiritual maturity, this spiritual manhood, this mature manhood, this full stature of Christ. Each individual Christian ought to grow up into spiritual maturity, but spiritual maturity in the individual Christian is not enough. 
And guys, this unity does not simply come on the initial act of saving faith. I would also say this for your context, our context. This doesn't happen with the signing of the church covenant. Even as explicit and helpful as that is, this unity doesn't just come from that. Like, the unity comes when we sign and believe everything in here. The same. Sure, we are united in that we are saved. But the unity spoken of here comes as we are more on the same page concerning how we ought to live and think according to the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity of the faith is produced by the common sharing of the knowledge of the Son of God. See, the glorified Christ provides the standard at which His people are to aim. And the corporate Christ cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. That's our aim. The full stature of Christ. So my last encouraging thought here would be work hard and yet rest peacefully. Work hard and rest peacefully. Let me read to you another quote from F.F. Bruce. He says this, When the goal... Everyone look up here. When the goal is ultimately reached and the body of Christ has grown up sufficiently to match the head himself, then what will be seen is that full-grown man which is Christ together with his members. That spectacle will not fully appear until the day when they are glorified together with him. But, the expectation of that day will act as a powerful incentive to spiritual development in the present time. Work hard, but rest peacefully. Where does our motivation come? There's lots of different motivations here, but at the very most fundamental level, our motivation should come from the fact that He will attain this in us, for us, and ultimately for His own glory. In the death of Christ, death's grip on our soul was broken. Our debt was paid. Our sins forgiven. And our bondage to the enemies of God and our own sinful hearts have been broken. The things that we have been called to rise above, to to grow to the stature above, And then in the resurrection, Christ, we have been made alive. We now have everything we need through the Word, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the giftings of the church to overcome with our Savior the sin of this world and our hearts and to rise to His stature, preparing this building in which God's going to dwell. Guys, the future expectation 
of our uniting. Remember that picture I was playing? What would it be like if we all walked into the room and we all believed rightly the same things about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and had lived in light of that truth? Like, and our time was not marred by sin and struggle and, and own, our own kingdom building. We can walk into that. That's the future expectation. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what's going to happen. The expectation of our uniting with our resurrected Savior having been brought there by His own death and resurrection should motivate our work today and tomorrow. So the resurrection... Why does it have application and value for every day of our lives, not just the moment we were saved? One, because the very equipping, the very resources we have, the very fact that we're alive to these things has been made possible through the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the very things that we enjoy in building up the body and helping each other are the bounty of, the spoils of His victory over sin, death, and evil. And it also has great application for today. Because in the resurrection, we see Christ rise from the grave. But it's, not, it's the same person, but He's a little different. He's now risen victorious. Right? He's now risen victorious. He came here. He came to the earth. He lived as a man. Walked. Walked in the midst of sin, yet without sinning was impacted by sin as far as feeling the effects of evil in his life as a man and yet still doesn't give in to sin, never doubts the Father. Then he goes and plummets into the grave where he dies under the wrath of God, paying the price for our sins. And death had a hold of him for a moment. And then he rises. Right? The sting of death is gone. And he rises. And he emerges, not as this man who successfully walked through the earth and did not succumb to sin, but now he emerges as one in stature, victorious over that sin. And it's the hope that that same man will one day come back. He will come back. He will get his people. And he'll put the finishing touches on the building where God's going to dwell. But here's the deal. We're called to work at building this building now. We're called to do the work of the ministry now. We don't just wait for Jesus to come back and fix everything. We, because of who we are in Him, work to do those things now. To grow into the mature man, to the full stature of Christ. And then one day, the resurrected Savior will leave His throne once again. 
And we, as His corporate people, having worked to attain this unity of the knowledge of the faith, this mature manhood, to the full stature of Christ, will meet Him face to face. And what does the Scripture say? That we'll be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. When the corporate building is ready, we will see Him face to face where the final touches will be made to His people. See, it's in the hope of his, this resurrected Savior and our meeting Him that we build up the body and build up the body until it's done. And when God has declared it done, then He will send His groom to get His bride. So let's be motivated because as soon as the bride is ready, He'll come get us. Amen? Amen? And I, you want to go home? Like, I want to go home. I mean, I'm enjoying living for God here. And, but there's, I want to go home. We have work to do. We have work to do, but we don't work as though ones who are on our own power and our own might. We work as ones who the result and the attaining has already been finished and accomplished. And we work to that end. We, as Ephesians 2, at the end there of verse 10, or not the end, but it says, where is workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before hand this working God's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them amen amen we're going to communion um we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper um and uh as we think back on the death and resurrection of our Savior so I want to ask whoever's serving the Lord's Supper that they come forward this morning um that they go ahead and come now and um and then the band will partake. I want to encourage you this. Uh, spend this time in reflection. Spend this time thanking God. Uh, use this time to um, ask the Lord if there's any sin that needs repented of. But, but most importantly, I would say, spend this time thanking God that He not only died on the cross, but that His payment was acceptable as marked, as, ex- by, as acceptable by His resurrection. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> I want to encourage you, if you, as the band goes, has come forward, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you just to watch. Just to watch as we enjoy the Lord's Supper together. And um, be encouraged by that. And I want to encourage you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to repent now. Place your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words to us this morning. That you are building together a people for which your glory to dwell. For your glory to dwell, Father. This is not just some huge religious activity that we're a part of, but we're actually being built into a place where your unmatched 
glory will dwell. Father, help us to keep our eyes set on that reality, that that's going to happen. Help us to work faithfully towards that with everything that's in us. Let us forsake working hard for all the things that the world tries to entice us to work toward. Careers, nice houses, or fancy thing. Who knows what it is. But then we focus our working hard after these things. It might be rest. It might be relaxation. Who knows. But for these things that we work really hard after. Help us to repent of these things and to work hard at building the dwelling place of God. The thing for which your son died and was resurrected to attain. For he is the perfect dwelling place of God. And we in him attain the same. Father, for your glory... And in His name we pray. Amen.